Hey everybody, so before we jump into today's podcast, I just wanted to A, thank you guys, give you a little bit of a reminder. If you enjoy this content, however you're watching it, consuming it, please like, follow, subscribe, whatever you gotta do, comment on it. If you can, leave us a review. It really helps us out and it can help grow our platform and reach more people. And if you know someone that can benefit from this, please share it with them. If you have a question, if you wanna reach out to us, let us know. And then lastly, we have all of our amazing programs, courses, and coaching available in the resources below. So check that out. Definitely take advantage of it. We have everything from free options all the way up to paid programs and everything in between to fit pretty much anyone's budget. And it's just a matter of how customized it's going to be based on the price point. So there's really something for everybody. Thank you guys. Let's get on into the episode. Yeah, fighters. What's going on, everybody? It's Mike here with the 100th episode of the Life of a Fighter podcast. We made it to the big one zero zero, guys. So I was telling you guys on the last episode that we wanted to celebrate and do some giveaways and some fun stuff, so reached out to a bunch of our uh, Life of a Fighter approved brands, and we got a great uh, response back, so I'm really excited that this episode's going to be brought to you by all of our Life of a Fighter approved brands, which we're going to be mentioning and shouting out throughout the next couple weeks, but specifically, I wanted to give a big thanks and shout out to uh, six of the brands that are just kind of putting up either some products, gift cards, and uh, different items that you guys will be able to enter in and get in a contest giveaway uh, for the next coming weeks. So I'll go into those and then we'll jump right into the fun for part two of our breakdown on the fighter's guide to brain myths, misconceptions, and all that fun stuff. So first... Got to give a shout out, Handstand, our Handstand trainer friends. Uh, they're doing a $20 gift card that you can use towards uh, any training services or services on their website and app. Then we got uh, Earbolt speakers. They're giving away a Bluetooth speaker. And when I tell you guys, um, they're NUB or NUB is how you'd spell it, speaker. It's Bluetooth. It's tiny. It's maybe the size of my thumb as far as height, and it's a little bit wider. You've seen me probably post pictures on social media. If not, uh, I'll be posting about it as well. I could even put some pictures below, but it's got awesome sound. Honestly, what I like to do is like I, I can put it in my office, and then when I leave and if I'm even going in the living room or anything, I can still hear the music. It's great sound. Great quality, even when I'm in the shower, I'll put it far away so I don't have to worry about getting hit with the water, but I can still hear its great noise or great uh, sound. So they're not only giving away a speaker, they're also going to give away a $16 gift card as well that you can use on their website for not only their Bluetooth speaker, but they're going to be coming out with headphones as well. They're going to be Bluetooth and wireless, all that fun stuff, so you can use that as well. Then big shout out to uh, one of our more recent sponsors and, and approved brands, Nutriprice and Nutriprice.com. That's where you can get all of your online food shopping needs, supplement, health and beauty products, all that fun stuff. They're going to be giving away a gift card. Uh, we actually haven't confirmed the price on that. So um, what I think we're going to do is we might even break it up where we do two gift cards instead of one bigger one. So we can just, I'm trying to create as many uh, prizes so we can give away, away to as many people as we can. And we also got Win Sports Laundry Detergent. They're going to be putting up two uh, $10 gift cards. So that's going to be another huge thing. I love, uh, again, I've even talked about, we did a whole entire breakdown on the benefits to Win and what they're doing with their sports laundry. But I really like it for anyone that's a fitness enthusiast that's wearing special gear, compression gear, 
um, and anything that's going to be anti-moisture. It really helps get the sweat and any kind of the bacteria out of that fun stuff. So those are the big ones. Also, uh, shout out to Core Flight. We're going to be doing a, a promo code for them where you guys will get a discount. So those are the main ones. Oh, and I cannot forget Quest Nutrition with the Quest Protein Cookies that uh, I've been loving. You guys have heard me either shout out here or just talk about on social media. Um, they're going to be doing a giveaway as well. So we're not going to – that's six, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. Bam. So that's our six um, brands that have been get, throwing some stuff up to giveaway. So we're going to have at least seven contest winners that will be uh, potentially able to win. And depending on how you guys, I'll go over the rules a little bit. Basically, to enter into this contest, it's going to be a completely randomly selected giveaway for each individual prize. And the best thing about this that I wanted to make sure people could do is one person can actually win multiple times. So if you win the handstand $20 gift card, you can also win the earbolt speaker. You could you could hypothetically win all of these. I mean, the chances and the way I'm doing it is a random selection. It's going to be pretty much impossible to have that happen. But... Um, what I wanted to do is give you kind of some chances of getting quote unquote points or increasing your chances of winning multiple items or just winning in general. So for everyone to enter, to enter the competition or the giveaway a hundred percent, you're going to have to like our social media page at life of a fighter on Facebook at the life of a fighter on Instagram at life of a fighter everywhere else on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. Uh, Google plus, Make sure you're checking out the podcast, subscribing on our YouTube channel, all that fun stuff. So you're following all of our social media accounts and any one of the Life of a Fighter approved brands that you want to actually win for, you have to like their social media accounts as well. And you have to share our post for the 100th episode. Uh, Those are the three requirements. So we want you to... Actually, technically, I guess that's two. So it's going to be you're going to follow our social media accounts. I'm kind of... merging following the accounts into one thing it's going to be both the life of a fighter accounts and whichever brand you want so if you want to win for handstand you have to follow handstand if you want to win for ear bolts you have to follow them if you want to win for all of them you got to be following all of them if you're already doing that great don't worry about it keep that then all you got to do is share the post we're gonna have hashtags in there so they'll automatically be shared and then if you want to get uh an extra chance of winning tag a friend the more friends you tag the more quote-unquote points or the higher percentage chance you're gonna have to win i have a whole kind of uh, mathematical formula here that's going to kind of weigh it out. So the more you do, the more points you earn, the more of a chance you're actually going to have of winning one and multiple prizes. And then secondly, what I'm also going to do is put in a link in our podcast and in the article that allow you to put your email in. So it'll be a special form that'll be just for the contest giveaway. It'll ask for your email. You can even send it to a friend or tag a friend or put in their information as well, and that'll give you extra points. So the more you do, the more of a chance you have to win, like I said. And that is pretty much it, guys. So I wanted to get that out of the way, the contest rules. Make sure we're clear on that. And I'm going to also do some surprise stuff. We have some um, signature Life of a Fighter t-shirts and clothing that I have in stock that I was saving for a rainy day for specifically something like this, our 100th episode, when we hit big milestones on social media. So we're going to be doing, uh, depending on on the the response we get, I think we're going to do five T-shirts from our Life of a Fighter signature line with the Naked Ninja, Steve Nichols. We have some of his shirts. We're going to be doing five giveaways for those. And then also we have um, some signature shirts we did with Jen, just Jen Ventriglia, who is also a kickboxing MMA female fighter, ass kicker extraordinaire. 
and uh, recently actually won or was placed in the top three at nationals at the WKA. So props and shout out to her. So we have some of those that I kept in the inventory in the, the exclusive vault here that I figured I'd bring out for this one. So if you guys want either a Jen shirt or a Steve or a Naked Ninja shirt, they're both going to be Life of a Fighter signature line. Uh, there's only a few. Um, I think I'm going to do five and five, five of Jen's, five of Steve's, uh, including all the other brands that we're working with. And that is pretty much it for all the fun giveaways, promo, fun stuff like that. Again, same rules apply to enter. Um, make sure you're following our social media. If you want to have a higher percentage chance to enter and win, make sure you're sharing, tagging, and putting your email in on the post, and that'll give you a better chance. And we can even send out more details. And we'll be making an announcement. I want to give it... Uh, some time, so I'm thinking at the end of February, so not just the week, but pretty much till the end of February. So this way, I can do also multiple parts, give you a little bit more time to share and get it out there and get all that fun stuff. And it'll take us some time to run the algorithm and make sure that it's uh, picked accurately. So, or evenly according to how I want to base it out with the points and fun stuff like that. So, without further ado, let's jump into part two of our fighter's guide to brain myths and misconceptions. So, we cover the first six chapters or lectures, whatever we want to call them. So now we're going to go over the next six. We're going from uh, chapter 7 through 12. That's going to get us to the halfway point. And there's a total of 24 chapters in this book and in this breakdown, so I made it into four parts. So the goal is to, at the end of February, hit all four parts. Um, so I'll do part three and part four in the next two episodes or next two weeks, depending on, again, how we have some other things going on. But we'll be covering the next six, which is, again, seven through 12 coming up. So for lecture number seven and chapter number seven, the topic and myth and theme of this chapter is we only use 10% of our brains, which is something that I'm sure we've all heard. I've definitely heard. I've heard it in movies. I've heard it in conversations and intellectual conversations. And I always was curious where that came from and how true is that. So the truth behind it. We use all of our brain, and in fact, it, the reality is kind of quite the opposite um, of we only use 10%. So we're actually using a very large majority of it. If we don't use a part of our brain for function, it will actually – they use the word reassigned, I think, for better kind of uh, explanation. It'll get either left behind or rewired. Okay, So that's kind of what, what they're looking at with reassigned. Cortical real estate is competitive. So the real estate in our brain and specifically um, frontal cortex or really any part of the brain, any part of the cortical area, that's why they're saying cortical real estate is competitive because of the neurological firing that's associated with it and the amount of plasticity we have at an early age and eventually how it starts to fade and even the amount of uh, BDNF that we produce and is expressed is starting to reduce as we age and will hit a sticking point where I think it's either 30 or 35 when they discuss in the book that we're only we're, we're regressing to the point where we're really only having two areas of the brain that are going to have continuous BDNF uh, production and expression brain derived neurotropic factor which allows neural pathways to fire up fire together and to fire stronger quicker excuse me more effectively so the idea is if we're only using 10% of our brain, uh, that we would have that, again, that other 90% to tap into where whether it's in movies, we've seen all oh, they're like superhumans or we can almost be telepathic. And the reality of it is we actually uh, 
our brains were evolved and designed to specifically utilize a lot of energy and a lot of space, and that's why they are laid out the way they are, and there's such a high caloric demand too. So we'll kind of dive into some of the bullet points that I liked that they were talking about in the lecture and in the book on where this myth not only came from, but also how it really is kind of getting misinterpreted and the misconceptions associated with because there's some underlying bit to any kind of myth there's gonna it has to stem from somewhere right so let's kind of look at that so the 10 percent myth the first interpretation is a more literal reading of the idea that we only use 10 percent of our brain matter in our daily lives so some authors point to the fact that children can develop with cognition relative intact so um meaning their brain's obviously not damaged or any kind of issues going on there that despite being born with large chunks of brain missing or that a child can recover from a complete, oh, I'll see if I can not butcher this word, hemispherectomy, and be also indistinguishable from his or her peers. So the idea here is um, that the brain function is still there, it's still working, even though or in spite of the fact that a child may have a part of the brain missing, removed, Again, hemispherectomy, where actually either the right or left hemisphere is removed um, and really cannot be that um, obvious to peers and in comparison to the peers at that age in that environment. So maybe a large part of a normal-sized brain either isn't necessary or is just or just lies dormant. So again, going back to the idea and what they're kind of saying here is if you can remove someone's brain and they can still function and there's still a lot of patterns that they can have, how is it that we're using such a high percentage of the brain? It must mean we're only using 10% because if we can remove 50% of the brain and they can still perform and function, then what's going on? How is that even possible? How can the brain function? So now we look at evidence of brain usage. So we understand the idea of, okay, that's what we're trying to break down and we're trying to look at. Now let's look at what the evidence of our brain usage and utilization actually is. So here we go. This is a great question. What is the evidence that we do in fact use more than 10% of our physical brains, including all of our cerebral cortex, even when we're just cognitively lazy, meaning we're just dazing off, maybe even we're sleeping, things like that. So that's the question we're trying to address. Our brains are metabolically costly. So to operate and to function, like I was saying, it costs a lot of calories, it costs a lot of energy that we have to feed that again, especially through evolution, if we're hunting and food's scarce and our brain, even if it's not running and doing analytical skills or functioning, it still has to operate. It's still costing quite a bit of energy. If it could only use 10% and operate, why would it run at 100% rate and burn up so many calories? That really wouldn't make sense. It would make more sense for it to actually, if it's only using 10%, for us to see a drop in the caloric expenditure and need that would go to the brain, which we don't see. And that's what they're bringing up in this kind of point, which I thought was very interesting. So we look at the activity of our brains at rest. It's clear that signals are zipping back and forth across wide swaths of our brains and no significant regions are simply quiet. So even though we're not doing anything, brain is still firing and still working. So that means that, again, and this is maybe it goes back to the interpretation of what does 10% of our physical brain use and utilization mean? Does it mean that we're actually consciously trying to recruit it? Then maybe, yeah, we're only recruiting 10% of our brain consciously, but subconsciously or even without having to think about it, our brain is firing, chemicals are going, signals are working, all those things are happening. And again, it's still costing energy. So all those things are still happening in the background, whether we're conscious of it or not. 
So the indisputable, indisputable conclusion from neuroimaging studies is that while we might not understand exactly what the brain's doing, the entire brain is doing something even when we're zoning out and we're not focusing on a specific task or item or even while at sleep. So connecting this directly to this 10% myth, they conclude is our whole brain is actively engaged even when we're resting our minds. So that's pretty much debunking or breaking down the myth of we're only using 10% of our brain even at our most active. So from brain studies, neuroimaging, and all of those different scans, we can see the brain is even working when we're not conscious of it. So that breaks it down right there. Okay, other evidence comes from patients with damage to the brains. It's virtually impossible to damage the brain to any significant extent without disrupting some aspect of mental life. Yet we still hear stories of children born with only half a brain, again going back to the hemispherectomy, or not even being born with half a brain but having to have surgery, which is a hemispherectomy. But now in this case, they're saying they're only born with half a brain who seem to function normally or people who regain function after a large part of their brain is damaged. So again, that's kind of going back to the original point of how can we damage that much of our brain with the 10% myth? But again, we'll still see a disruption being made in some form, but it may not just be where they can't interact and have a quote-unquote normal life. So even though, yes, it would somewhat make sense with the argument of if you can damage a brain so severely that we must be only using 10% of it. Otherwise, how could it restructure itself? But that just goes to show you that's why the brain's functioning at 100% or even at close to 100% as possible because when it does get damaged, it can still rewire and restructure itself to work at efficient levels. And uh, I want to take a break before I go on to chapter eight to address one of the questions that we got um, that I thought was really good that can kind of, kind of tie into here where how can we prevent the uh, neurodegeneration over time. And one of those big kind of tie-ins to what we just said was even if our brain is not fully being utilized as far as a conscious level, it's still constantly always going. But we do have to keep in mind, as we mentioned in one of the bullet points or the book mentions in one of the bullet points, is that it's the brain has to constantly be connecting and wiring itself. Otherwise, that area of the brain or that part of the brain will get reassigned and redistributed to something else. So that was kind of part of the truth there. And the, the whole point of tying into how do we prevent neurogenerative breakdown is by using your brain, consistently challenging yourself. And we've mentioned that um, in past conversations and topics and even episodes, and they'll mention even in future ones as well in this book and in, in the chapters to come, is the idea that when you that's why a big thing with retirement for elderly is that's why you'll see such a deep and steep decline very quickly is because they're not learning new skills they're not being challenged they're not having to use a majority of their brain that allows it to not have to fall back regress or wire in other ways so if you can constantly pull demand out of your brain and challenge yourself in new ways that's a great way to prevent breakdown at a young age or even as we progressively get older which makes it even more important that's when you're really going to start to see a neurodegenerative breakdown um, so yeah, that was just a quick one I want to jump into. Now, some suggested reading. This is, this is what I love about uh, The Great Courses too, and in particularly this one is the suggested reading they finish each chapter with to kind of follow up on it. So um, you can always look at that. Questions to consider. There's two on this chapter. One, why would anyone think we can only use 10% of our brains? And clearly we kind of covered that right off the bat is the potential damage that we receive to brains. And that is the, the somewhat explanation as to how can they still function afterwards. But we kind of, I think, at least I, I feel like I did a good job of summarizing where they were going and bringing up the idea of, well, 
the way the brain functions is so that it can rewire itself and it's running at such a high rate and high capacity that it has the ability to actually rework itself when an injury or something does occur. Okay. Um, number two, if we use all of our brain all the time, how can we ever learn anything new? Is there a limit to what or how much we can learn? Ooh, boom, another great question. And again, what, what came from the chapter is that when we learn new things, again, we're, we're creating new neurological pathways. BDNF is being produced and expressed, which allows for more uh, or an increase in neuroplasticity. Again, the brain being able to be flexible and move and create those pathways and learn more. But with certain things, we will see there is a max. Like There's only going to be so many names that you're going to be able to remember. There's only going to be so many numbers that you can remember, and there's shortcuts your brain's going to take. However, if we constantly are learning and growing and challenging yourself in new ways, the brain really can almost be limitless because of the constant growth and challenge you can give it, which I find intriguing. But again, there's going to be limitations to it. So really, I can't use the word limitless 100% because, again, we're going to have a ceiling where you can only remember, I think it's 150 uh, names is what the... I forgot the, the, the scientist that came up with the theory, but it's a theory basically that you can only remember 150 names based on the way we were evolved in tribes and communities, that that was the most conducive to us surviving. And when it got bigger than that, that's when things would break down anyway. So we don't want to get that large. All right, let's go into chapter number eight. So do you perceive the world as it really is? And the myth is that you see the world as it is, that there's no skews or... Um, any kind of influence on your perspective and that your vision and your senses are 100% accurate. You're objectively um, translating everything that you're taking in from your senses into processing into the brain and then being kind of reacted upon. So the truth, we experience the world through our senses and our senses only track a tiny portion of the environment and our senses give us only a rough sketch. The brain fills in the rest. So we can kind of take a snapshot even of a picture. So take in a picture, and if you take that picture really quick and you only have a very short window to react to that picture, you may actually fill things in that aren't there, you may assume things that aren't there, or you may kind of exaggerate things that are there. And that's kind of what happens with vision. Again, we're looking at things for a split piece of time, and depending on the situation, especially if it's a high stress, you may not be cognizant of all the little details, and that's where, again, the brain can kind of fill in the details, depending even on suggestibility of interviews, or again, when we go back to if there's been a crime committed and you're being uh, questioned for it, they can lead you down a path to even fill in the blanks in a way where you might even hear or see or think you smell or any of those senses that didn't actually happen. So let's look at vision first. Vision. All of our senses, uh, no, excuse me, of all of our senses, visions ta vision takes up the most cortical real estate. So the most amount of space in the brain um, is going to our vision. Uh, our retina, where the light from objects is translated into neural signals, is a flat sheet. And then we get into a little bit of a breakdown. It's two-dimensional. So we need to infer depth from other cues. We can't just look at it from the way our actual physiology is interpreting what we're seeing. So such as wide objects occlude each other, how big they are relative to one another and where they are in one eye versus the other. So where they're actually laying out in space, how they overlap with one another, how they're interacting with one another. So for example, if I look at my coffee mug right now and I put it in front of a pen or my notebook, I can start to get a relative idea of the three dimensions to it, even though I'm only really seeing in two dimensions based on the light that I'm seeing, the way it's being refracted, the reference to the other objects and all those fun things that are going on in between. So it's really suggesting that the brain can be tricked quite easily, which is 
part of the the downside to our brain evolving and, and having to go through so much growth so quickly because it had to come up with shortcuts and nature and kind of exploit that. And that's part of um, where I think the myth of we see the world as it is. And, and I always used to think this is like when I see the color blue, someone else may also know that, yes, we, we call that the color blue, but the shading and the actual color to it can be completely different for another person. So that's something that I think is just really interesting that we kind of dive into on the vision breakdown of it. So when we go beyond just the vision, it's not just, okay, I'm seeing that, we have our two dimensions, all that fun stuff. It's also, how, how is vision working? And we kind of broke down a little bit on, okay, we have to interpret within these two dimensions. It has to reflect off the light. It's going to this area in the back of our brain. Okay, let's break it down a little bit more. The visual system is a great tool to illustrate other principles of perception too, particularly the shortcuts and filling in that we're largely unaware of. So I tried to just kind of go over that, those shortcuts, and we're going to break it down a little bit more. So light's going to travel in the form of photons, little pockets of energy, and uh, that bounce off of objects that they encounter, and those waves of light can be very short or very long, and every distance in between, and especially our human brains only perceive a small portion of this continuum of light and length and waves. So again, going back to how do the shadows and how does the light play off of that object? How long does it take to get into my brain to be interpreted, to be translated? Depending on the situation, also I have other senses that are kicking in. It'll allow that vision to create shortcuts. Okay, we go into some more bullet point details on how that's working, the different areas of the brain, the receptors, all that fun stuff. So the next thing we bring up is the binding problem. Our visual system changes the initial stimulation from the retina into a set of signals that are actually useful to us as we wander around the world. So for example, if we had no translation of this light and vision bouncing into our brain and being received by those uh, receptors and translated, if we couldn't make those firing uh, receptors happen to translate to another part of our brain on what we're interpreting and seeing, it would be useless. It would be like, okay, cool, I can pick up some things, but I don't really understand what they are. The understanding and that interpretation is just as important to actually seeing and, and getting actual visual access to whatever the objects or, or environment is. Okay, also, we even have a blind spot in our retina where the nerve fibers exit the eye. So... That's where there are no photoreceptors. So we can't detect photons in that part of our visual field. So if we can't detect it, guess what's probably going to end up happening? We're going to have to fill in those blanks. Yet we don't walk around with a black hole in our vision. You don't actually see, oh, there's that giant hole where I'm not receiving all those photons and photoreceptors. Even though it does exist there, we're just filling in those blanks because that's the way the, way the brain has worked to operate together. So again, let's, let's think about that for a second. So if you look straight ahead, do you see any holes? Do you see two, or do you even see two circles that it would be technically both your eyes interpreting the objects and visual layout in front of you and then being kind of merged together? No, this is all happening at one shot. You're seeing with two eyes. You have holes in the back of your eyes. That's where the light has to travel through, and that's where all the nerves are firing out of or, or working out of. And yet, you still see the world in front of you with one clear big picture. So then that's susceptible to being 
misinterpreted or to being manipulated again and that's even like magicians work off of that really really well and that's an interesting topic that we even dive more into and they dive more into in the book that I thought was great but I don't want to go too much into that I just wanted to kind of talk about the idea and and tie in back to the myth that we perceive the world around us 100% as it is objectively without any kinks which is not the case okay again we just kind of covered that we have holes in our eyes that we don't even see because our brain has kind of came up with a system to overlay both sides both the left and the right eye, both the left and right visual field, interpret them together and have this happen in a split second where we can see everything in front of us, process it and interact with it, and we don't even have any holes or issues with seeing it. So I thought that was really interesting and well-covered myth that they broke down. Now going into chapter number nine, is your brain too smart for magic tricks? So this is kind of tying into what we just talked about with the visual field and we're gonna. I think the answer is pretty obvious that we've learned that we're not as receptive and objective to the world around us with our senses as we think we are. So the myth, your brain might fill stuff in, but it doesn't outright lie to you. Okay, so let's kind of evolve on what we just talked about with vision and our senses and now tying it into uh, the myth that our brain may even fill stuff in like we were talking about. Like you don't see those holes in your eyes that are in your actual visual field that are the holes in the retina where your nerves travel out through, but they are there and for some reason you don't see them. So is that just your brain kind of filling stuff in or is it your brain outright lying to you? And the truth of it is illusions are present in all of our senses and can give us an idea of how the brain accomplishes the difficult task of perceiving the world. So because we have multiple senses and they all combine together to form a picture, we come up with little hacks and little holes that can be manipulated, especially magicians take advantage of it, as I prior said, and that we're going to kind of dive more into. So situational awareness and confirmation bias, especially confirmation bias is going to be a big one. Magicians, having learned just how precarious our potential... Wow, that's really bad butchering of that word right there. I apologize, guys. Attentional system can be attentional. Attentional system can be train themselves to overcome their limitations and become attentional experts. All right. Then when they demonstrate their new superpowers, we attribute it to magic. So the idea is they've learned how to manipulate our senses and our interpretation of the world around us. And so much so to the point where they know they can do it reliably and even convince us in a very mass, mass population and viewing perspective that it's not that our brain isn't being manipulated. It's that somehow it's magic and this external force really exists when really it's just our brain being manipulated and a combination of situational awareness being taken advantage of and again our own mind confirmation bias of we're confirming something we want to believe and what we want to see because of what A, the magician has shown us and what the magician has taken advantage of in our actual interpretation of the brain. So let's look at some change blindness. And this is a really interesting one where what are we talking about when we're talking about change blindness? So when we're observing any kind of environment, something can change in that environment and we're not even made aware of it, okay? So all of our senses, our visual system, auditory system, sense of smell, sense of touch, and so on, and even our cognition are susceptible to habituation, okay? When we encounter the same stimulus or situation over and over and over again, like driving to work every day, we begin to stop responding to it or ignore it altogether 
or it just becomes less and less sharp to us, more dull. So if you're driving to work every single day, the same route, you know it inside and out, you can start to feel more comfortable texting. Not that I condone that you should. You should not be texting on your phone. You shouldn't be doing anything else while you're driving. Very dangerous. But that's where I think a lot of that is coming from, and that's what they're tying it into and alluding to is that the more you work a path, the more you grave it in, the less it's actually um, going to be taxing, and the less that same stimulus is going to have uh, as sensitive as a response over time. So you can kind of show yourself the same thing over and over and over again, and then boom, you don't even notice that there could be small changes happening throughout the way. So a good example was they had students um, in a study watch a ball and try and count how many times a person bounced a ball or passed the ball to each other. And then in the background, once they got, let's say, 30 or 40 bounces in, there was uh, a person dressed up in a suit, uh, like a gorilla suit, I think, and they were walking back and forth. And they found that some of those people that were counting didn't even realize the people that did the most effective counting, that counted the most passes and bounces were the ones that did not even notice the girl walking in the background. But the people that counted less and were more aware of the entire situation actually saw the gorilla or uh, whoever was the, the gorilla suit, whoever was dressed up in it. So the idea is if we're not paying full attention to something and, again, we're not having that habituation come into play where we're just being habitualized to the same thing over and over and over again, we're being aware of our senses, then change blindness where something can change and we're, gonna, we're not going to be blind to it. So if I'm more aware of my surroundings, but maybe I'm not as tuned in on the fine details of like, okay, what color was this specific item in this picture? If I knew that's what I was looking for ahead of time, okay, I'll lock in on that picture and I won't notice. And then maybe you'll ask me a question about, okay, what, what, how many balloons were there in this picture? I don't even know because I was only looking for what color this item was. So then if you start to change things, it doesn't even become noticed. So that's where the habituation and change blindness comes play, which I thought was really interesting. And that's, again, going back to magic, you can do a lot of hacks there and take advantage of the brain and how it fills things in. Now, this is where, again, magicians are going to thrive too, through, too, excuse me, is hallucinations and illusions. So much less on the hallucination side, much more on the illusion side, but let's dive into it a little bit. So if you deprive yourself of one sense, for example, hearing, uh, by hearing a blindfold, what? For example, by, I'm just, I can't read. By wearing a blindfold, I was gonna say, how can you hear a blindfold? But if you're wearing a blindfold, you can heighten other senses such as hearing. In the short term, Though disorienting, sensory deprivation can be relaxing. There are even so then where we talk into sensory deprivation tanks, and Joe Rogan's made them really popular, and they've kind of popped up all over the place. And I've even seen them even while I was in Thailand at Phuket, they had sensory deprivation tanks. So that's how you know you're making a big one. You're going out to all these different parts of the world, and it's expanding. So the idea behind this is going into the hallucination side when you kind of restrict one sense or multiple senses, you can start to have hallucinations because that. Um, that part of your brain that no longer is being stimulated will start to fill in the blanks or another part of the brain will start to become overactive as part of that reaction. Or illusions in this sense is if you're, let's say, being limited in one of your senses, the potential for you to assume something is much greater. So, Or even if we look at um, the rubber hand trick or the rubber hand experiment where this is where more of an illusion will come into play. Someone was made to believe that, th- so they were blindfolded and someone tickled their left hand and they felt the tickle on their left hand. Okay, great. And then eventually what happened was they put a rubber hand in place of their hand 
But when they took the blindfold off, they didn't tell them that. So it looked like their rubber hand that was exposed was it wasn't. It's in the same place where their hand was supposed to be, and their and their hand below their hand. And for whatever reason, for the experiment, I'm I'm probably missing a couple details here. But for the experiment, let's just say they didn't notice or they weren't aware of that change that was made. Somehow they didn't because they were blindfolded. They didn't know. So now they're tickling their actual hand under the table, which they're unaware of, but they're also simultaneously tickling the rubber hand. So they're connecting this neurological wiring like, okay, I'm associating what I'm visually seeing with what I'm also feeling. And then what they ended up doing was after a certain amount of time, they took a hammer and they smashed the rubber hand and the person pulled back and reacted as if they were in pain initially because they automatically assumed that that was their actual hand and anticipating this is going to be painful because I just got my hand smashed. So again, that goes back to the illusion of the brain and how sensitive it can be and how you can take advantage of it with either magic or any kind of manipulation. So the myth of the brain might fill stuff in, but it doesn't outright lie to you is again that myth because we can see illusions are present and there's ways to manipulate our senses just like we saw with either the change blindness experiment with a gorilla suit where if you're focusing on one thing, you can have something come by and... Again, that's not your brain just filling in stuff. It's like you're just outright – I don't want to say it's lying to you, but it's missing a big part of that. You're being, again, tricked. Okay, So that's where that part of it comes into play. And some fun reading. Check it out under suggested reading and the two questions to consider at the end of this chapter is how much control do we have on our attention – which we do have control, but at a certain point, it is a limited resource, and there's going to be things that will have an influence on it. And two, if we can induce the illusion that a rubber hand is our own appendage, what happens when we spend a lot of time driving a particular car, interacting with the world through the same kind of machine or through some kind of machine? So if we're using phones, for example, or cars or trains, and that's our means of transportation and interaction, what's happening to our brains there? What's happening to how we see the world? Are we missing things? Are things kind of going by at such a rate that we don't, we're not even aware of it, which is, I think, a really important part to become conscious on a different type of level, not conscious of one particular thing, but just being conscious of your environment, which is really important. All right. So I've been kind of taking a little bit longer on these first two. So uh, I'm going to try and speed through chapters uh, 10, 11, and 12 a little bit where we still make sure we get our points home. So is your brain objective? Okay. And this is, I think, pretty clearly we're really understanding that it's not, but let's look at what, what we're talking about. So the myth, when we're testing our beliefs, we evaluate all the evidence Equally. Equally is the key word here. Truth. Our brains are pattern detectors, okay? Pattern detectors. And that interprets and impacts how our brain receives information. So we look for regularities in the environment. And this tendency means that we search for evidence that supports our beliefs rather than information that might challenge it. Because if it goes along with what we're believing, that's easier. It's almost a more efficient process. But if we have to challenge our own beliefs, that's way more costly and go against a lot of the wiring within our brain, which again can cost more energy. And that's not really efficient process. But it may be the best thing for us. So this idea of confirmation bias and the reality behind it. So confirmation bias. We're pretty good at recognizing when things repeat in the environment at noting coincidences, but we're not very good at figuring out how likely those coincidences are in a world governed by chaos. We don't take into account base rates or the law or the raw likelihood of an event happening without intervention. Okay, So we, we start to think, okay, this is going to happen 
no matter what, or how did it happen, what caused this to happen. The positive and negative sides of confirmation bias. So let's look at both sides of it. This is an interesting point. We don't just look at, a lot of times we assume confirmation bias is a negative thing, which I would tend to agree to, where you're just trying to argue your side, but we're going to look at the positive and negatives. In the confirmation bias, a bug in our brain that we could do without, or I'm sorry, is the confirmation bias a bug in our brain that we could do without? No, because it's part of the brain pattern detection process that also gives us some truly sublime experiences such as appreciating music. Okay, that's good to know that part of these things is being able to connect those dots in a way where we realize, oh, I do like this. Okay, good. Repetition is found in music across cultures and genres, and there are many more repetitions in music than in regular speech. For example, your favorite part of a song is more than likely going to be the hook, right? Depending on your interpretation of music, your skills in music, you know, uh, musicians, but they took, again, a large study, and they found that the repetitive parts of the song were people's favorite. Okay. Is the confirmation bias a bug in our brain that we could do without? Let's look at no again. Okay. Our brains have evolved to be efficient pattern detectors. All right. So this is kind of where, again, the confirmation bias is going back to pattern recognition. So if we start to notice the same things, we start to clump them together, it becomes a faster, more efficient system. But the, there's going to be pros and cons to that. We search for meaning in even the most ambiguous things because it might have been adapted for us to mistake the leaves for a leopard rather than fall or fail to notice a predator. So the idea is this evolution is good to pay attention to details and to have that pattern recognition because at a certain point it could have cost us our lives and still can now, but obviously we don't have as many predators hunting us as opposed to other realities that we have to kind of be aware of. So again, we break down some more examples and all that fun stuff and the, again, the pros and cons of the confirmation bias. Okay, so let's look at some of the negatives. The negative of the confirma confirmation bias is that it can drive people apart into camps or the versus mindset, us versus them kind of mindset, which has been illustrated in a number of studies. One of these were famously conducted in 1979. We have Charles Lord, Lee Ross, and Mark Lepper who were interested in Understanding how the confirmation bias might contribute to attitude polarization and increase in disagreement between two groups of people when presented with more evidence. Okay, so we want to see if you give you more information, are you guys going to start to split apart and argue with one another? You're going to start to be able to take that information in, saying, okay, cool, maybe we were wrong. Let's look at this objectively. We see this effect when it comes to emotionally evocative issues okay usually ones that tend to be political in nature such as gun control gay rights capital punishment and i'm sure the list could continuously go on you could think of a lot of different things in line with the confirmation bias lord ross and lepper found that when people were given studies investigating capital punishment people reported that the studies that they read that were in line with their original opinion on capital punishment were more convincing than the studies that they read that were not in line with their opinion on the issue so let's just try and summarize that this is the most important thing of the negative aspect to confirmation bias is when they were hearing both opinions and arguments for their what they originally agreed they were in favor of, and they also heard things that would kind of break it down and be against them, they would hold more weight and find it more compelling to obviously support the cases that were supporting what they originally believed. So it's dangerous to go down the slippery slope of the confirmation bias, which we naturally have, because 
even if we have the wrong idea, we'll support the wrong idea because we've tied ourselves to it as opposed to recognizing the information that's coming in to saying, okay, you know what? Maybe we did have the wrong idea. And that's the biggest takeaway that I'm getting from this. And I think that maybe we should all take away from this. So let's look at uh, questions to consider. How can we recognize confirmation bias in our own decision-making or weighing of evidence? And I think that's pretty clear. Uh, look at what are you trying to support how much have you looked at both sides of the equation and what do you find yourself favoring towards just naturally without thinking about it? Question number two, how much evidence should we consider before we change a belief? That's a really good question. So I don't think there's a golden standard of okay, but I think when we talked about the positive and negatives of even confirmation bias, you have to look at the pros and cons of any topic and allow yourself an equal amount of articles and respect both those, so maybe three and three, whatever it is, but allow yourself to have both sides of the equation as objectively as possible. But again, because this confirmation bias, we'll naturally find that's harder, but be conscious of that and challenge yourself to work away from that bias. What might the benefit of confirmation bias be? Again, when we go back to pattern recognition, sometimes it can save us time and be efficient with that ability to say, hey, you know what? I've seen this before. It's grouping into this. Boom. Let's go. I support my opinion. I kind of got it locked in. It's, again, saving time here. All right. Up next, do we have five independent senses? This is a great question, great lecture, uh, great topic in general. And the myth You taste food with your tongue, and different parts of your tongue taste one of five different flavors. Bitter, salty, sweet, sour, and umami. Truth. Taste perception is much more complex than simply where food hits your taste buds. In fact, taste is largely based on smell. So it's not to say that there's not five different flavors, that bitter, salty, sweet, sour, and umami don't exist. And it's not to say that we don't have... A taste sensor, but it's saying that it's more complicated than that and that there's uh, sensory crossing involved, okay? So psychologists distinguish sensation from perception with sensation from referring to the process by which our sensory cells are stimulated by light, air, chemicals, and so on, and perception being the ways in which our brain turn those signals into usable information about the world. Sensation is about detection. Perception is about interpretation that we can act accordingly. So the sensation of taste is one thing, and then the interpretation and or so the perception is about the interpretation of what that taste actually is. And that's where we're involving our other senses of uh, sensory crossing, smell specifically. Okay, sensory crossing. Another myth that studies of how we perceive flavor have helped debunk is the idea that each sense operates independently of the others. That is, what we see doesn't affect what we hear and vice versa and so on, which is a false. That's another part of the myth that our sensors or sensory systems are acting independently of one another, okay? Let's see if I can, again, not butcher these words. Synesthesia. Synesthesia? No, not even close. Synesthesia. Synesthesia. There we go. Got it. Nailed that. Yeah. Well, that's as close as I think I'm going to get. All right. There are people for whom sensory crossing is heightened. Synthesis. Synthesis? Synthesis. However you want to pronounce it. So here's an interesting topic. The idea that some people are more sensitive to our senses than others. So synthesia is a neurological condition in which stimulation of one sense causes the involuntary activation of 
a different sense. The most common type of synthesia is called, here we go, with more complicating terms, and now that I'm going to butcher them, graphimer, graph, grapham color synthia. People with grapham color synthia see letters and numbers in color. So, for example, if you were going to read a sentence, there would be, let's say, the word the. T-H-E, each one of those letters would not only be letters, but you would also see them as different colors if you had this condition, which is interesting because, again, that's where sight is now being manipulated and other senses are kind of coming to play, or maybe not even other senses, but that sense itself is uh, heightened to the point where other things are coming into it, okay? Other forms of synthesia include associating sound with colors, such that a car honking might evoke the color blue, or sounds might evoke tactile sensations or words with taste, such that the word soccer might evoke the taste of bananas. So that would be very interesting if you're speaking a sentence, then all of a sudden you have different tastes firing in and going from there. So it just goes to show you that these five senses aren't going to act 100% independently of one another even in a, a in a traditional brain, but then we also have certain neurological conditions that even emphasize that point even more. All right, we don't know how synthesia develops, but it does run in families, so it can be a genetic or inherited issue, and it also, or condition, I should say, not even an issue. It also seems to be uh, emerging in childhood. And every year, we seem to discover new crossings and new insights into our senses, making it clear that we're far from done with respect to understanding our subjective experiences of the world. And again, that those senses are reacting and interacting independently of one another. Questions to consider. These are going to be fun. What neutral odors have you associated with specific tastes? That's an interesting one. Let's see if I even have... A, a neutral odor, so something that's not really going to be going one direction or another associated with specific tastes. Um, I don't really know. I'm going to have to think about that one. I want you guys to think about that too. Let me know what you think. Post up on social media. Maybe we can go over that. Can you think of any sensory crossings that you might have experienced? Ooh. Um, yeah, I mean, anytime I hear a specific song, I'll, I'll, I can condition myself to uh, use that to prep for fights or like physiological condition where I slap my skin and that'll also um, have a couple reactions where I'm not even hungry but that I start to hear a song with the first walkout song that I came out to pump it up um, just random things like that I've definitely experienced alright now we're going into chapter 12 lecture 12 Finishing up part two of our Friday Guide Breakdown to Brain Myths and Misconceptions. Can certain foods make you smarter? All right, this is going to be a fun one because obviously nutrition is one of my favorite topics. And this is something I've talked about and I'm even writing more about how we can use our diet nutritional intake to impact our brain positively. So the myth is eating certain foods will make you smarter. Now, it's not to, so this is really interesting that I want to spend a little bit of time on. Um, the truth, eating a healthy diet is important for brain health because the brain is so metabolically expensive. So there you go. There is a support that nutritionally we can have a positive impact on the brain. However, it may not be what we think. But so far, there aren't any foods that consistently improve cognitive function. So it's not like when we talk about these superfoods, it's not to devalue these superfoods, not that there's not a positive impact on the caloric intake and expenditure and therefore having a positive impact on the brain or that maybe even certain foods can have a positive impact on the brain. But statistically, they have not been able to consistently 
and directly associate improvement in brain function, cognitive function with each individual food that we're about to bring up. So even when we talk about antioxidants, we often hear good things about green tea, coffee, chocolate, red wine, blueberries, strawberries, all of which contain antioxidants are often labeled quote unquote superfoods. Is there any is there any evidence that they can boost our brains? Certainly many companies that market special drinks would like you to think so. So this is a very interesting perspective they brought up in the book that I'll dive a little into is the idea of not just for antioxidants, but for any kind of food. If it's a quote unquote food, there's not going to be as much research done because there's not a financial incentive because it's hard to patent, protect, and profit off of foods such as blueberries when anyone can just grow them and sell them. So there's more value to having, let's say, a specialty drink like um, a Gatorade or it doesn't matter what the drink is, but let's say it's a brain cognition drink. Now you have a patented or at least a mixture concoction that you can at least profit off of that is more powerful that you'll see people being willing to fund studies for. But again, even when they look at the studies, what what, what saying in this particular book and their interpretation of it, and I partially I agree with, partially I, I, I'm kind of conflicting on, so I even want to do more research myself, is the idea that we're not seeing the direct benefits a lot of these nutrition or quote-unquote supplement companies are claiming, but there may actually be benefits there. Like for example, we know just from a biochemistry standpoint that certain micronutrients are going to be precursors or involved in a process to synthesize another type of whether it's nutrient or another type of system and have a reaction to that. So there's going to be some things that we can manipulate there. But now if it's a direct correlation and causation of in that immediate moment, blueberries by themselves, are they going to make me smarter right now in 20 minutes and 30 minutes? No. There's, there's no statistical evidence of that. Even in two weeks, will they make me smarter? However, what I would be more intrigued to see is more of the data and the research on which they have come out with and we can see in the, the NHI and um, PubMed and all these other medical journals and meta-analysis that there's an association of calorie intake, calorie restriction, and macronutrients and even fat intake and omega-3 intake and DHA and EPA of having a positive impact on brain function and performance. Now, this is where the myth is coming in of certain supplementation and specific foods are going to be these quote-unquote superfoods that significantly impact brain performance, but it's really more of a subtle part to a overall picture of you need to have the right nutrients coming in and where you see nutrient deficiencies is where you'll see more of a positive impact with these superfoods and less of, okay, if I just eat a handful of um, dark chocolate-covered blueberries, my brain's going to be supercharged in a way that may could have just came from you know, the calorie intake and some of the other things that are being associated with my listening to music. There are all these other factors. However, the downside to this particular myth and them trying to, to burst it and, and the truth of it is that they are right. There is the truth that they say that it's less about you know certain foods will make you quote unquote smarter, but more about the healthy impact these foods have on brain function and other aspects of the body that definitely are making a positive impact that you can utilize for performance. It's just not that direct association of a twenty minute window. Okay, um, even with power drinks, you know you might see bottles in your local health food store from whatever the branding, whatever they're talking about. Some of these even contain neurotransmitters and hormones. So. That's where you'll see, all right, maybe it's not even the superfood or the food item itself. It's some other secondary ingredients of other types of neurotransmitter um, 
items, ingredients, and also hormone impact ingredients that are going to play more of a role less than the actual food itself if it was just subjectively taken out and taken as a food source. But when you mix up other items, that may be what you're seeing, okay? Even caloric restriction. There does seem to be some evidence that caloric restriction, eating substantially less than most people do, may enhance cognition and even extend your lifespan. So this is counterintuitive, okay? And I was just even saying before, like you wanna eat calories to fuel your brain, your brain runs on a lot of calories. However, if we are overfeeding, there can be obviously a negative impact from what we're seeing. So a calorie restriction and a certain amount of limitation to your foods can be powerful as well. So being aware of total calorie intake, being aware of what type of macronutrients, like fats, proteins, carbs are taking in, being aware of micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, as well as where our hormone levels are, neurotransmitter activity, all these factors are all going to come into a play. And then being able to say, all right, am I eating just plain out too much? If I eat less, what's the impact that it's going to have and all that fun stuff. So I thought that was really interesting and I was kind of glad to see that part of it at the very end saying, hey, yeah, this is a potential myth and where's the evidence basing behind this to support this kind of a statement because that's a very big statement to make. But even I've said this years ago, you can look at videos I've made from 2010 even or earlier and later than that where we talk about how I think there's an association. And when I say I think, it's not like I'm the first person to come with this. Based on the research I've done, based on the the other professionals and experts I've talked to and the, the data that's coming out and the research that I've seen and what's coming out, that there is a connection between what we're putting into our bodies and the performance physically and uh, neurologically and cognitively. But it may not be as easy as, hey, it's connected to one individual food that's going to give you a substantial increase in performance in and of itself. There's going to be multiple factors coming into play here and multiple things that we're going to see that we want to be aware of. Even like we said, and like there's other aspects, exercise, um, that alone can also have an impact on our BDNF and other neurotransmitters and hormones, just sugar in and of itself, uh, placebo effects that we talk about, that can also play a factor. So there's a lot of different things that we can see that will be an impact that we don't want to just ignore. But again, for a lot of this, unfortunately, there may not be enough data to support a lot of these findings or theories or at least on a large enough scale to really say 100% this is the case. So for now, what we can look at and know for sure that there's yet to be enough information and studies done to support that one individual food item or a combination of foods will have a substantial impact within a short window of time that we can directly measure. That doesn't mean now over time that a certain type of food or nutrition protocol or exercise routine or a combination of those things or even neurotransmitter cycling and hormone cycling and all those fun things won't have an impact on the brain, but it's not as cut and dry as we kind of can assume it to be. And that's pretty much it for part two, guys. That's going to end up chapter 12. Uh, One thing I want to finish with is, again, the questions to consider. And then we'll wrap it up. So first one, can your brain tell the difference between healthy food and junk food? That's something that we can definitely see when you look at. And again, we have more bullet points that I didn't dive as much into. But look at the fish oil one. Look at the sugar one. um, And kind of look at some of the other breakdowns. Two, what effect might your gut microbiome have on your brain? That's a big one I didn't even really talk about. But we can kind of finish up and talk about that a little bit here. Where we have bacteria in our gut. And what's interesting about the gut is... A majority of serotonin is going to be made there, which is a neurological uh, influencer and a neurotransmitter and a chemical that's going to have an influence on a lot of other factors and signaling in our brain. But it's not made in our brain. It's made in our gut. 
and a big influence of how it's being made, how much, all that fun stuff is not just what's going on in the head, but our nutritional habits and our diet and what kind of foods we're taking in because the bacteria in our stomach can live off of a bunch of different things. So if we feed it straight up sugar or more pure sugary items, that's going to grow one type of bacteria strain or culture. And if we feed it other types of micronutrients, fats and proteins and and higher vitamins and minerals, that's going to grow a different type of bacteria culture. So that's something to be aware of that uh, our microbiome is going to have a big impact on how our brain is going to work and function because of not just the chemical signaling, but all the other effects and impact it can have, whether we're talking about our immune system too, leaky gut syndrome, where we're not even absorbing the right amount of nutrients and and uptake. And that's where nutrient deficiencies can come into play. And that's where I think there is something to say about superfoods of, it's not just a myth. If you have a certain condition or you are deficient in a certain type of area and that particular food is going to be rich in that uh, nutrient, then I think we can even maybe not call it a superfood, but it can act like one and impact your performance much greater. So that's just what I thought would be helpful to wrap it up. Again, guys, don't forget we have our contest we're going to be running. It is the first week of February now. We're going to be running it all month long until February uh, 28th. And I want to make sure that we give you guys the opportunity to again enter in uh, with more chance than just like and sharing. Make sure if you tag your friends, you increase your chances. If you click on our email and you uh, put your email in, again, you'll have a higher chance of winning. And also if you put in your friend's email or you send it to a friend or anything like that, you'll have a higher chance of winning. So I hope you guys enjoy all the giveaways we're doing. Shout out to all of our Life of a Fighter fans that were participating. You can get their information below, social media, websites, all that fun stuff. I'll put again the contest rules below and all the details. And I appreciate you guys and all the support. We made it to 100. Here's to 100 more and to continuously grow and share this information and education and all, all the inspiration that A, you guys have given me and hopefully I've been able to share along the way and make an impact. Um, I love hearing different stories and, and, and working with even new clients and, and I, I was really fortunate to be able to get um, another pro soccer player uh, on board with us and obviously I can't go too much into details of who, what, the why, the where. Um, but just to say at a very young age, there's a professional soccer player that's growing and evolving and uh, it's just another person that I'm really excited to be able to have an influence and have our team, not just myself, but the entire Life of a Fighter team and community uh, just grow together. So I look forward to continuously learning and growing with you guys. Hopefully it's helped to some extent. And uh, yeah, you guys are, are awesome. So let's keep this bad boy going. And I will talk to you guys next time. Peace. So I just wanted to say thank you guys again for watching, listening, consuming that episode. If you guys enjoyed it and you haven't already, please like, uh, please comment. If you haven't reviewed, please leave a review. If you haven't followed or subscribed, please do that as well. Again, it tremendously helps us out. And then just a quick reminder, if you guys want more resources, we have them below. We have our programs, everything from free all the way up to paid and kind of everything in between dial in with the customization and we have more information on different programs and resources in our newsletter. So if you haven't signed up for that, do so below. It's free. And that is it y'all. See you on the next one.